1: dive in to gotta watch the tape from cleveland.com the companion podcast in the orange and brown talk feed douglae maurice with scott Patsco and ellis williams you're getting the hang of it by now we do it twice a week we do two big issues about the cleveland browns and we dive in for half an hour on each of them going first this week ellis williams scott will go in the second half it's Cleveland at Dallas on Sunday. So we you know we like to let the game influence what we talk about, but we go deep no matter what, because you know it matters for Sunday, but it matters for the whole season. So Ellis Williams, we'll start off with you. This is a very important thing that I was just re-watching something from last season, had brief nightmares, momentary nightmares. And there's something that I noticed, and again, I'm the dumb guy. I noticed something. And I think it's different than what's happening this year, which is why I'm excited for you to talk about this. So Ellis
0: Williams, dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Yeah, well, this topic is important this week in Dallas. It's important next week. It's important all season long. And it's the basis of football. Scoring touchdowns, baby. And the Browns are pretty dang good at it this year. So far, I know the sample size is small through two games. But the eyes, the tapes, it doesn't lie. The Browns are an impressive red zone team. They're 8-10 on their red zone trips, scoring touchdowns. That's 80%, which is fourth in the league right now. Last season, over a 16-game schedule, the NFL leader was the Tennessee Titans at 77%. Um, And then in fifth place, it was about a 64% conversion rate. So the Browns, 80% is likely going to fall a little bit. But it doesn't change the fact in how they're scoring these touchdowns and how that differentiates from last year. Just let's start with Baker Mayfield in the red zone because – in football, regardless where you're on the field, it starts and ends with your quarterback. Baker is 4-7 for 19 yards, and most importantly, he has four touchdowns and zero interceptions. You know, that's basically as flawless as you're going to get from Baker in the red zone, and most importantly, he's not turning it over. So before we dive into some few other things, you guys – The Browns are really impressive down here. And you guys would know as, you know, watchers of Browns football much longer than I, that's probably not a norm in Cleveland. So with them converting at an 80% clip and with how Bakers looked, um, you know, Doug, you teased at the top of this podcast is what are some general observations you've seen from this Browns red zone and what's impressed you guys so far?
1: So I made myself rewatch Rams film from last year and the red zone issues there. So I'm still recovering from that. Scott, what's hopping off the, the tape to you when you're looking at them in the red zone, especially?
2: You know what it kind of reminds me of? The last time the Browns were really good in the red zone, 2018, when Freddie Kitchens took over, which probably has a lot to do with why he got the job the next year. That was a point where they were 15 of 16 in the red zone that season. And they've kind of – everything fell apart last year, but everything's kind of – the trends have reversed this year. They've gotten the tight ends involved. We've seen Njoku and uh, and Bryant both catch passes, and that's something that we kind of anticipated – I'm still waiting to see them figure out how to get Nick Chubb into the end zone on short yardage to goal plays because that hasn't happened. Um, he's really struggled. He had, five, or he, he had 15 carries inside the five last year. That was the third most in the entire league. He is the only player in the NFL who had at least 10 carries from inside the five and came out of the season with negative yardage. Really? He had minus 14 yards. He scored two touchdowns. He had minus 14 yards on 15 carries inside of the five, which, I mean, when you think back that everybody's screaming last year, give it to Chubb, well, it really wasn't working. The year before, five touchdowns on seven carries inside the five. So it's great that Stefanski seems to have a, a good handle on how to get the ball into the end zone. But I think the next step is, is making Nick Chubb a part of that when the ball is, you know, inside the five-yard line.
1: I will say I watched uh, one of the things with the Rams game last year. Nick Chubb scored on a carry from like the two and then the Browns had an illegal shift because Baker had motioned OBJ down and they didn't wait for him to reset before the snap. And it was just like a weird, dumb, sloppy thing that that was part of it sometimes with the Browns last year too. It's like, you gotta have scheme, you gotta have personnel and you can't be dumb and sloppy when it matters down there. So I'm, Ellis, I'm very curious to see, you're telling us they're much better. Maybe you've noted this. By the way, they, as much as I am having nightmares, and I think a lot of Browns fans have nightmares about last season, they were actually middle of the pack in touchdown conversion in the red zone last year. But that doesn't take away from the fact that 80% is awesome. So why is it happening?
0: Yeah, when you break down the table, the reason it's happening is how Kevin Stefanski is able to dress up his formations, his personnel, and make exactly like he said he was going to do, make the defense confused, but his offense understand what they're doing is pretty simplistic. So the Browns have scored touchdowns out of 11, 22, 21, and 23 personnel. It, when I found that stat, it was just really impressive. Cause when you look at the tape, they're never really doing the same thing twice. Even when Baker Mayfield, you know, he has three incompletions in the red zone and two of those could have been touchdowns one uh, to Austin Hooper of the top of my head. He just, you know, missed them a little high and outside. And then he had another one um, to Harrison Bryant. Oh, he missed Harrison Bryant. He ended up booting and throwing it out of bounds. It was when Odell kind of broke back inside. But what Kevin did was he stacked both the tight ends on the left side and ran a little wiggle rub and had Harrison break inside and Baker just missed him. And then again, I already said on the Hooper miss, he, he just overthrew him. So Really, if we could break this into subsections, like what is Kevin Stefanski's true red zone percentage on play calls, like when they should hit, and what is the Browns' actual, which is 80? Coach Stefanski really isn't missing. He's calling plays that are getting his players open, and that's why he has so many uh, shots at this, and and he goes back to the well and it's working because no two plays are the same. We saw last year with Freddie Kitchens, they were just running slants. Just my guy is going to beat your guy, we've got Jarvis Landry, we've got OBJ, and we're going to win. That's not a game plan, and I know they were middle of the the pack last year, but that speaks to their talent, and now Kevin Stefanski brings in the sophistication of a a well-oiled offense and can put his players in different spots, in different scenarios, and have different personnel, but they're running simple concepts that are getting the players open. They look different, but it's all the same, and it's resulting in touchdowns.
1: The second half of this podcast, by the way, is going to be Scott Patzko going in deep on Austin Hooper. So we're even going to get more involved in the tight end game here with the Browns. There was a great discord last year between the idea of, should you be throwing to players or using certain players, or do you just run plays in the red zone? And so you, like you said, again, they were middle of the pack. They were 58% touchdown percentage last year. I think it was 14th in the league in the red zone. But it, and, and actually, I think when you go back, OBJ did have some targets, but to me it felt like every pass went to Demetrius Harris. Shout out to Demetrius Harris. It's our mandatory mention of Demetrius Harris on Gotta Watch the tape. It felt that way. So Ellis, when you're talking about, it does feel like you're talking about scheme, but I guess the best coach, what he will do in the red zone especially, is scheme it up to get the best players open, right? Are you seeing a marriage of the types of routes and calls that Stefanski is making, and then who also is winding up getting the ball in the red zone? Or how's that, that mix working?
0: Yeah, I will say this. He's, he's really infatuated with Harrison Bryant, and that's going to be a guy to keep watching as the season progresses, specifically in the red zone. What I really like about how he's deploying Harrison, and we, we, we speculated about this when he was drafted. You go back and you watch Harrison's college tape he lines up in the backfield. He lines out split wide. He lines up tight as a traditional tight end. He lines up as a flex wide in a, in a, in a marriage off the off the back of Austin Hooper there. And one of the touchdowns, it was actually his, uh, Harrison's first touchdown last weekend. Uh, it, it came on a broken play. Baker extended it and rolled right and found Harrison Bryant. But what's so cool about that play is... The Browns are technically in 21 personnel. So when you go back and you look at the Browns personnel groupings, that touchdown's going to go down as a 21 personnel score, which makes you think, oh man, here are the Browns running two tight end sets, heavy, you know, downhill football. No, 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 Go watch the tape. Harrison Bryant was split out as a wide receiver, you know, back how you would use how the Patriots would use Rob Gronkowski split out wide to, to have a mismatch, you know, obviously Bryant's not built like Gronk, but it does something to a defense. And it really speaks to Harrison's skills as a wide receiver that Kevin Savancy trusts him to run a slant to open up Kareem Hunt on a rub route. Hunt wasn't there in the flat, and Harrison Bryan had the football IQ to follow Baker across the field and replace a safety spot. So it's, it's a bit of both. That it's, it's a, he's using the scheme to get players open, but he's asking both players that he knows are capable of handling what he asks, and he's hitting defense with, with players that they wouldn't expect. You know, I I expect the fullbacks to get a little more involved in the red zone as Stefanski has to keep emptying his bag as the season goes on here. But right now, when your attention is on Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, Jarvis Landry, and OBJ, he's looking for guys like Harrison Bryant in the red zone. And just even though his targets might not be that high, the the plays I'm seeing, Harrison's having opportunities and they're going to be there going forward. I believe that.
1: I don't want to steal the thunder from what the tight end discussion around Austin Hooper is going to be in the second half, Scott, but what Ellis is talking about with, we know how much Kevin Stefanski likes tight ends. We know how they have invested. They invested a a fourth round pick on Harrison Bryant, but that guy looks like he's probably a better player than a fourth round pick. And we know they invested money in Austin Hooper. Does that, does the emphasis on the roster on tight ends, does that, is that one of the reasons that they're better in the red zone, right? Is that a, is that where you get some bang for your buck, out of tight end investment is down here.
2: I mean, look, you mentioned Demetrius Harris. Ricky Seals-Jones was another uh, big-time uh, red zone target last year for the Browns. So we've seen this from the Browns before. Um, I think it, I think uh, Kyle Rudolph and Herb Smith combined for like 21 red zone targets last season. So it's just—it's not just about scheme. It's You've got to have guys who can catch the ball. We saw Demetrius Harris struggle with that quite a few times last season. Uh, there were catches that he needed to make in the back of the end zone that he just didn't. Uh, so the Browns have guys who can do that now. And, um, you know, and Harrison Bryant, like you said, he, I, he just reminds me of the way they used Ricky Seals-Jones last year is, is basically a, a wide receiver a lot of times. And, you know, he's getting the most out of – he didn't just bring in tight ends to block, obviously. He's getting the most out of these guys. And we're forgetting, you know, David Njoku not part of this. All those catches we saw drop last year in the end zone, ideally they would have gone to Njoku. This year you've upgraded those positions, so you're seeing them caught.
1: When I was looking back at again sort of the deployment of the personnel, and there is a difference between Alice, obviously the personnel and then how you line them up, that you can have an empty set with two tight ends and a running back, right? That that that's a personnel look, but you're five wide. It did feel like the 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 thing that stands out that everybody remembers is the the end of the game against the Rams last year when the Browns are down seven and they get four shots at it. And it felt like, I think they were five wide on three of the four plays. I think they might've had an offset tight end on one of them, but it just felt like every play was everybody split out and then everybody run into the end zone. And that that's like all it was. And I, I know we're going to get to more Baker stuff about this, but to me, and actually, the, but this goes against it. I hate when I make a point that goes against facts note to self. They scored in the red zone this year on that play that you talked about, Ellis, on, on Harrison Bryant working across the field. Baker scrambles out to his right and hits him. But to me, most of the time in the red zone, when it really works is when it's in rhythm. And it felt like there were times last year when it was like, the initial read's not there. Baker holds it. The pass rush gets to him. And now just given the fact that he's not Russell Wilson, he's not Patrick Mahomes, when he gets flushed, I just think that's it, especially in the red zone right? That it's like, well, that's. I mean, now maybe you'll throw it up and someone will grab it somehow. But the plan has blown up. And it felt like when they were five wide like that, empty, the plan just got blown up all the time a year ago. But what you're saying is they are using scheme and personnel. There's more variety to it. So a defense doesn't know what to expect when the, uh, the Browns offense gets
0: down there. Yep. Doug, I'll say this again, last year, they were just lining up their guys and hoping and basically saying, you know, our guys are better than yours. We're going to win. Let's look at the empty touchdown empty set touchdown they had this week. Again, five wide, no running backs in with Baker Mayfield, except instead of having OBJ split out wide, you have OBJ in the slot with Kareem Hunt out wide that forces Washington to move a linebacker over to Kareem Hunt and Kareem Hunt's going to win that matchup. So he's scheming up matchups, while still putting Baker in in any situation that doesn't feel redundant, because when you throw five wide, five wide, okay, now it's third down, five wide, the defense knows what's coming. You can have Kareem Hunt, Harrison Bryan, Oscar Hooper on the same field, and it can be empty, it can be eleven, and it can be twenty-one. It, it, that's the range of what Kevin Stefanski is building. With how he dresses his team up so as much as we're talking about the tight ends kareem hunt is as much of a, a of a responsibility in this and probably the most important piece of this browns red zone offense and the success so far
1: so we do we want to get to baker but but the part of this and we're sort of talking about scott what you mentioned about nick chubb um they do with the running team that they are Should there also be a point of this where, especially when they're at the three, the two, like really inside the five, should they be able to just line up and slam it in with the running back that Wyatt Teller gets to work that now you feel good about all five offensive linemen. Scott, since you, you talked about Wyatt Teller before, I don't know, you know, on previous got to watch the tape. I I think, again, I, I think every problem last year, is compounded by the offensive line. But when you say Scott, that Nick Chubb is a negative yardage in the red zone, that to me is an offensive line issue. And that should be better this year, right?
2: Oh yeah. You would think. Um, However, (laughs) football outsiders, uh, uh, you've heard of the uh, people who've read Ellis and I have uh, uh, seen us use DVOA before. And for those who don't understand, it's a metric basically that measures you against the average of the league. If you're an offensive player, you want large, positive DVOA numbers. Defense is negative. But anyways, the Browns, uh, they also have a power ranking as far as offensive lines go, what Paul Astyters do. The Browns' power rank is 30th. Basically, they do not excel in those short yardage, third and fourth down and two to go, or you know, goal to go, whatever, down to the end zone. This is where the Browns struggle. They were thir- they're were 30th right now. They were 29th last season. They were 32nd in 2018. So, There's been changes on this offensive line over that time. And for whatever reason, at this point, they're still struggling with that. Now, they haven't had a ton of opportunities this season inside the five to run it. But it's something they need to work on. And it's something that they've really struggled with in the past, which doesn't make a lot of sense when you think that this offensive line has a a running back who was challenged for the rushing title last year, had such a great 2018. And for whatever reason, they are just not good at getting him uh, the needed yards on short yardage situations.
1: Given the personnel and the way Stefanski schemes it up, should that improve over the next thirteen games, Ellis?
0: Yeah, Scott. I'm really glad you brought that set up because it's a real interesting number to watch. Um, you mentioned how they haven't had a lot of chances, and that's because you know Nick Chubb had a 20-yard rushing touchdown last week. You know, so that so if you don't even have the the goal to go opportunities, those numbers are going to be suppressed a bit. And then Kareem Hunt had what an like an 11-yard score versus Cincinnati. So you know when you're back and just Finish from inside the you know between the 25 and and the and the 10. That that's a that's that's a luxury that most teams don't have. But Doug, to answer your question, I would bet on it changing just because Kevin Stefanski wants to play bully ball and the way he's built this unit, the way they're performing already, they are playing like and they both have the the capital up there, the the just passing the eye test, the height, the speed, the size. That their offensive line is going to dominate most units. So if I had to pick a side, like, oh no, Nick Chubb's not going to be finishing in close, or no, this is going to get better. Just there's too much evidence to say that it's going to get better, other than Nick Chubb not being a good close in close runner last year. I will say this: I don't think he's as good of a in close runner as Kareem Hunt, and that has to do with a little bit of um, some shiftiness that Hunt has a a quicker twitch, if you will, compared to Nick Chubb's uh, downhill running style outside of a, don't, don't get it twisted, Nick Chubb's a great cutback runner, but he's still more of a downhill one to cut type of back where Kareem Hunt can wiggle and find those holes a little better, I think. So I think it does improve, but does it improve for Nick Chubb? I'm not sure I'd be more confident with Kareem Hunt in close. And again, it goes back to what I said. Kareem Hunt is really the focal point and, and the reader of the success of this red zone offense, of course, with Kevin Stefanski calling the plays. But when they get down here, is their best option? You know, they
1: got to have a mix, of course. But is it really going to be? It's going to be finding the right routes and Baker making the right reads and throwing in rhythm. Ellis, is that in the end is Baker Mayfield the pivot point of whether this is going to be long term a successful red zone offense?
0: Yeah, he is because, look, we can go back to um, Sunday night football week one, I believe, Uh, Patriots, Seahawks, I was maybe it was week two. But when you get in close and you just keep running, running, and running, it works. But when it becomes a sellout, all-out blitz, uh, running the ball probably isn't the option. So it's going to come down to a marriage between Kevin Stefanski and Baker Mayfield. Kevin Stefanski is going to keep scheming up these got-to-have-it plays. Where I mean, just think of how open David Njoku was for the Browns' first touchdown of this season. I mean, they came out in a 23, two running back, three tight end set, and the Ravens were just all out blitzing. This team's totally running the football, and, you know, David Njoku, those are probably some of the harder balls to catch. I you know I held my breath for a second there between us, but he came down with it, and that's what I expect more going forward. In In these pivotal moments, if the Browns are in close games and need scores, yes, you can lean on Kareem Hunter, Nick Chubb in close, maybe first and second down, but these third and fourth downs as this season gets – keeps going and the stakes get higher it's going to be Kevin Safansky using some deception some play action and Baker Mayfield having to be accurate and put the ball where it needs to go how does and, and either of you guys can take this
1: how does Odell ideally fit into a red zone offense he's not a gigantic receiver although that's a that's overplayed right I think everybody thinks like the best red zone receivers like oh if I could pick a red zone receiver he'd be 6'11". And you just throw him lobs in the end zone. That's not the only thing you can do. What's the answer here? Is he, is he an integral part of the red zone offense? Because Ellis, like you said, last week he helped clear out two defenders because he drew attention and then Kareem Hunt was single covered and Baker found the right matchup. That matters. But can he run routes? Can Odell catch touchdowns for this team in the red zone? Or is that just not a, a primary part of his game?
0: Go ahead, Scott, because I, 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 Doug's not going to like the answer. You go first. Uh, It's weird because the things that Odell has really excelled at in his
2: career aren't things that Kevin Stefanski's offense really focuses on. Those quick slants and using his quickness and speed to get off the line and and hit him in stride, which, you know, obviously he's not going to be running with the ball in the end zone, but those are the kinds of things we've seen Odell excel at, and it's not really what Stefanski's offense is all about. So I'm not sure yet how Odell fits into this in a red zone situation decoy sounds great although i think we saw way too much of that last season both him and landry uh, it seemed were just out there to kind of draw attention away so our our good buddy demetrius harris could be the big star so yeah I, i'm not sure how he fits into that yet
0: yeah Brian Scott, break my heart yep yep yeah. yep Scott scott teased it there uh stefan diggs last season for the minnesota vikings with kevin sapanski of course as his offensive coordinator had five red zone targets uh caught one of them Uh, that is the model for Odell Beckham Jr. here. Unfortunately, Odell uh, is not going to be pleased about it. Browns fans or fantasy football owners aren't going to be pleased about it. And it has nothing to do with Odell not being capable of producing in the red zone. He is quicker than most any corner lined up against him. He doesn't get many one-on-one chances. So that just eliminates going to him for any smart offensive coordinator or, or, or game caller. But in the Browns situation, when your strengths are your offensive line your running backs, your tight ends, play action passing, and window dressing your scheme. I just named four or five strengths that don't include Odell Beckham Jr. So if your sixth best option or your fifth best option is Odell, you only get four downs. Odell doesn't make the list. It does
1: feel like the way that Odell would score in the red zone. And again, I mean, he might catch like a 17-yarder, but we're talking about like really like when it gets down and dirty, right? Like first and goal from the seven if it is going to be a quick slant to Odell, he's probably going to have a second defender hanging over him. And it's going to be like a bang, bang play. And maybe like in the middle of the field, right? That maybe you line him up in the slot and run a quick little slant or line him up outside. It just, I don't know that Baker is like super comfortable like ripping in a tight window on a first look between two defenders when it's crowded down there. Right. So that, that, that doesn't match it either. That maybe a more experienced quarterback or a guy with a, a bigger arm or maybe a, a taller quarterback, I don't know. Maybe other quarterbacks are more comfortable saying Odell has half a step, I'm going to put it right on him. That also doesn't seem like the ideal throw for Baker Mayfield from the 6-yard line.
0: Yeah, Doug, it's just not worth the risk, simply. Kevin Safanski's already shown us this year that when Baker is going to throw Odell, he, he's going to throw outside and high. You know, Odell Rent runs that breaking out outside. I just don't see the way Kevin Safansky carries himself and is calculated as a man that he seems why run the risk of throwing a ball across the middle? Browns fans saw it too often last year. The Jarvis Landry pick comes to mind uh, versus Seattle. I know that wasn't exactly in close, but when you get into that, that, those tight windows, I just don't see uh, the upside to throwing to inside to Odell Beckham Jr. when you can run right, boot right, play action pass to an outbreaking tight end and, and, or find a cream hunt for a mismatch like Baker's been able to do. You just have so many better options Than force feeding Odell Beckham Jr. And Odell's going to have to be cool with that. And so far he is.
1: So we'll wrap up with this. And again, no expectation that they're going to stay at 80% touchdown percentage through the entire year, because nobody in the league did that last year, but Scott and Ellis, we'll start with Scott. Will this be a good red zone team? However, you want to define that top 10 in the league. I don't know, top five, top 12, you know, better than the 58% a year ago. Do the, with the scheme and the personnel, Scott, will they be good at this the whole year?
2: Yeah, I would certainly think so. And I would certainly hope so. We talked a lot about how this offense has so many weapons and how do you keep them all happy? How do you make use of them? Well, the red zone is a good place to do that because you, again, you you have the shortened field, but you have all these opportunities to make all these mismatches and yeah, maybe Odell isn't one of the top options here, but you do have more options than most teams have. So I, I expect them to be a good red zone team just because of the fact that they have so many possibilities.
1: And by the way, this is the difference between maybe being a playoff team and not being a playoff team, whether you are good in the red zone or not. Go ahead, Ellis.
0: Exactly. You don't kick field goals and make the playoffs. It's that simple. I got a lot of love for special teams coordinator Mike Prefer, but you don't want to be kicking 22-yard, 18-yard field goals. Uh, This team, I would be shocked, Doug, if they're not a top 10 red zone offense this year. They've got too many options. They've got too much talent up front. And Browns fans are going to become – so endeared to Kevin Safansky in close. He's going to become a fan favorite and he's going to instill confidence in, in the fan base when this team gets in close. He, I wrote about it last week and I, I want to be in front of this. He's becoming one of the gotta have it down play callers in this league. Whether it's fourth down or close in the red zone, he's got a bag of tricks that are not gimmicky. They're just confusing for a defense, but simple for an offense. That's the key in the red zone. Confuse who's across from you, keep it simple for your guys, and get in the end zone, baby. They've got the talent and the play caller to do it now.
1: That's our first dive on Gotta Watch the Tape. Make sure you are subscribed to this Orange and Brown Talk feed. You get the Orange and Brown Talk every day. There's a picks pod that went up Friday morning Ellis, Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Lobby, me. I was one in three last week, but we're doing a lot of picks. We pick three games and we also picked the browns game there's of course the great post-game pod that when you are ravenous to hear from our experts about what just happened in that game our tech subscribers get to jump in on that we get that pod out to you very quickly and then of course we're doing this gotta watch the tape twice a week tuesdays and fridays we'll be back after this with the scott patsko deep dive all about big money tight end austin hooper next on gotta watch the tape Back on Gotta Watch the Tape. And Scott, because I knew you were doing Austin Hooper, I watched an Austin Hooper game from 2018. I looked at some Austin Hooper stats and I freaked myself out. I am panicked about his worth in Cleveland. Scott Patzko, dive in on
2: Gotta Watch the Tape. I don't know if I'm going to help your panic or not, but <laughs> but here goes. Uh, I think uh, before we talk about what he's done this year, it's important to talk about what Austin Hooper was in Atlanta because that's why he signed the largest tight end contract in history, in terms of yearly average, I think he's been eclipsed since then. But at that point, uh, he was making big bucks. He was basically—he was a focal point of the offense in Atlanta. Julio Jones is the only guy on that team who had more receptions, more targets than him over the last two years. He had 93 targets last season, 87 the year before, 70 plus catches both years. So this is the guy who was getting a lot of looks in Atlanta. He had 18 red zone targets all by himself not a guy who was going to like create a lot of separation, but he's this guy who those 10 yard dig routes or the curl routes, quick outs. He just found spots in the defense to get open and they made good use of them. So that's what the Browns ended up signing this offseason. This, this prolific guy who seemed like young guy too, who seemed like he's ready to kind of take off and be consistently one of the top tight ends in the NFL. Meanwhile, over in Minnesota, Kevin Stefanski is using multiple tight ends Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith, both had 46 targets last season, a lot less than uh, Austin Hooper's used to. They combined for 21 red zone targets. Again, Hooper had 18 by himself. They also had, both had more run blocking snaps than Hooper has had in all but one year of his career. So all these things are a little bit different in Minnesota, and that's kind of what Austin Hooper is stepping into. I don't know, you know, we heard David Njoku ask for a trade and, and we never got the full story on that. But when all that's going down, I'm wondering, here's Austin Hooper. He knows what kind of offense he's getting into, but he also signed a four-year, $42 million deal with $23 million guaranteed. So maybe that makes up for it. So before we get into what Austin Hooper is doing this season, I guess the first question that come to mind is, who made the mistake here, Austin Hooper or the Browns? God. That's a lot of money to give to a guy who clearly knew he wasn't going to do what what he did in Atlanta.
1: Are we doing and should Austin Hooper demand a trade by week five in
2: year one? We're not doing that. Are we? I'm not saying Austin Hooper's unhappy in this offense. I'm saying that he clearly had to know this. He wasn't going to be as prolific a part of the offense here as he was in Atlanta. All
1: right. Can I give you an Atlanta stat that I looked up in 10 minutes? I counted up how many times Austin Hooper had at least eight targets in a game as a Falcon. Mm-hmm it was 11 times. And I don't know, this is probably dumb guy stats. We should have a separate thing. You guys do your thing. And then it's like, let's do a two minute dumb guy stat thing. This is like quarterback win. you know, it's like, cause I'm going to do a win loss thing, which is like, Oh, Austin Hooper. It's your fault. The Falcons lost a game because like the defense sucked or Matt Ryan threw three interceptions. He had 11 games where he had at least eight targets. They were three and eight when he had at least eight, excuse me, at least eight targets. And two of them were like the last two games of last year after their season was kind of in the tank. And so I went back and watched the one win before that. It was from 18 against Tampa to see what does it look like when Austin Hooper is used a lot in a win? And I'll get to that. Is that a stat, three and eight, when he's targeted at least eight times? Does that mean anything or is that dumb guy stuff? Go ahead, be honest. I'm a dumb guy. I can take it.
2: I think that's a good stat because anybody who gets eight targets in a game is having a big impact on, on the play calling and, and what the quarterback's doing and what the offense is doing. I would say yeah, that's a good stat.
0: Okay. Doug Doug, I'm sorry, that's a dumb guy's stat. <laughs> You got it. We got to look at the full picture here. Just look at what's going on in Atlanta right now. I don't know how Dan Quinsel has, has a job that's been boiling ever since they gave up the Super Bowl to the Patriots. What, what, four years ago now. Uh, so I think that's more of a, a product of Atlanta's offense and the, the, since they lost Kyle Shanahan, lack of an offense and turmoil of an offense that they've had an offense that can't figure it out and a team that can't win games more than it is uh, says anything about Austin Hooper. So Toby J gets
2: eight targets. We're saying he—he he was a big part of the offense this week. That's like this, this discussion you have every week about about Beckham and, and how he's not, you know, he, he didn't get a target until the um, end of the second quarter, or they made a big deal when he—he he was actually targeted in the first quarter against Washington. That's his first first quarter target of all season. I think eight targets is—I like the stat, Doug. I think it's a good stat. It could be good and a dumb guy stat at the same time. There you go. I think that's fair. <laughs> so it's an interesting dumb guy stat. There you go. <laughs>
1: I do think, I mean, there definitely were people here, definitely people that, that I saw who were, and maybe you guys, I mean, you probably among them, that when you spend that money on Austin Hooper, is he a product of a system, right? Is he a product of that? Are you signing a guy? Okay, I would like it. See, it's good with the video because I can see what your reaction is. So Scott, just that idea. Is there any inclination three games in that makes you think whatever Austin Hooper did with his stats in Atlanta was a little bit of the product of that and less about, he is a great individual player worth the money, or is that not at all the road you're
2: going down? That wasn't the road I was going down. <laughs> I think he's, he's really on, on – he's, he's doing a lot of the same things that he did in Atlanta, but there are, are a few key differences in how he's used in this offense. Um, I mean, he's on target basically to be Kyle Rudolph. Uh, he, he's only got seven catches on ten targets, but that's 53 targets, 37 catches. That's basically what Kyle Rudolph did last year. The problem is he's not really getting many red zone targets yet. We saw them with Njoku and Bryant, but it hasn't it's been, it's been one with, with Austin Hooper. He's tied for third in targets with Kareem Hunt on this team. The, the differences here are in how often he's used as a blocker. He's basically the same kind of blocker that Minnesota had with Cal Rudolph and Irvin Smith. They, neither one of them were particularly great, but they were good enough to make Minnesota one of the better rushing teams in the NFL. So I'm not concerned about how good he is as, as a run blocker. The big difference is here, he was one of the top tight ends in the league last year in running seam routes down the field. He basically had the same route distances that, that Kyle Rudolph had the last couple of years. Uh, Next Gen Stats has a stat called Targeted air Yards. It basically measures how long the ball travels in the air before it gets to the receiver. And he was about 6.8, 6.7 the last couple of years. Kyle Rudolph, 7.1. This season, Austin Hooper's at 4.3. He's really not getting very far down the field on routes. There's a lot of going out 10 yards and basically being the check down guy. We saw them get him involved early last week with, with the, uh, the screen, which I'm pretty sure was the first one of the year for anybody. And they came back to him again later in that uh, first drive. It wasn't really a screen. He just kind of snuck out into the flat while Baker rolled out and he, uh, he gained a few yards on that. But you don't see him going down the seam because that's really not a, a, a route that Kevin Stefanski used a lot. I think Cousins threw seven total screens, just attempted, or seven total seam routes last season. That's not something that's really as much in the playbook here as it was in Atlanta. So that's a big difference. The other thing is Austin Hooper's asked to pass block a lot here. And that's not something he did a ton in Atlanta. Uh, he has 16 pass, blocks, pass blocking snaps so far through three games, which doesn't sound like much. But he had 35 all of last year, 57 the year before that. He's on pace for 85, which, again, is about where Kyle Rudolph was. He had 90 last year. So he's really on that trajectory basically to be what Kyle Rudolph was for Minnesota last year and not what Austin Hooper was for Atlanta in previous years, which we've had this conversation about Beckham. We could probably have it about Kareem Hunt. Hooper's another guy who had great numbers and was a focal point of an offense before he got here. And now in this offense, he's one of many who has a much different role and either has to deal with it or or by the end of the season, maybe there are some unhappy people. Who knows? But in OBJ's and Hooper's cases, they're being paid like the focal point of an offense, which could create issues down the road.
1: Ellis, you were – it seems like you have zero doubt that Austin Hooper is a very good player. Is that correct, Ellis?
0: Yeah, 100%. Austin Hooper is one of the premier tight ends in football – he Scott has set up this argument perfectly because he is great at doing what he's asked to do, which is right now run block, be an effective pass blocker when asked, and to find holes in zones that so far the Browns haven't been able to exploit. Which teases something we probably don't have time to get into, and something we will probably get into on a, a later segment of I've got to watch the tape as these weeks unfold, but the Browns are ha- have a real issue between the twenties right now and moving the football against good defenses. It didn't exist against Baltimore. And if the Wayne Haskins doesn't gift, you know, the Browns all those short fields, we're talking about a, a closer game. The Browns did have that one 11 play 75 yard drive, but that's where I'm thinking Hooper and Jarvis Landry really need to start. And it's not on them. I don't think this is more of a, uh, a Baker topic, as most things with this offense are, they need to find a way to start moving the ball between the twenties. And that, like Scott said, is something that Austin Hooper excelled in in Atlanta. Sure. He was a red zone threat, but whether it was the seam route or finding holes in the zone, that's where Austin Hooper made his money in the passing game. So I want to wrap this up by saying this, Austin Hooper is worth every penny for two reasons. One, Andrew Berry, Kevin Stefanski, and really anyone following the league Foresaw the tight end market booming. I mean, we have Kelsey, George Kittle, and uh, Zach Ertz all up for extension. So the number you signed Hooper to really wasn't going to be a record setter for all that long. And two, Browns fans saw what happens when you don't pay top dollar for a tight end. You get who we started talking about this podcast with, with uh, Demetrius Harris or Ricky Seals-Jones. Those are the type of tight ends you get when you don't pay top dollar. So Kevin Stefanski knew he needed one to two tight ends he could really trust, which is why he paid top dollar for Hooper and why he invested draft capital in Harrison Bryant. You had to make that move. And I, I've been really impressed with what I've seen from Hooper so far.
1: My previous point is withdrawn. You Demetrius <laughs> harassed me. I have zero doubt that Austin Hooper is worth the money.
2: We have but set a record for saying that man's name on this podcast.
1: We're going to have to invite him on sometime so he can yeah. punch me right in the neck. Um, I did it's like he, taught, he caught a touchdown against the Rams. And I was like, I can't believe it. But then they also threw to him in the back of the end zone and it hit off his hands and like they should have thrown to Jervis. Uh, Scott, it, I, we do have to put him in context though, right? And I guess this is fair, right? He, because of the money. And, and listen, I, I have to make sure that I at least do this to Hooper because I do it to OBJ. It's like o, OBJ didn't give himself the contract. But every time I talk about Odell, I say, well, you're making $14 million. How come you're not better? You're making $14 and This kind of makes me a jerk. So Hooper's getting a lot of money. I mean, I guess he's not Travis Kelsey at the moment, right he's not George Kittle yet, but like what's the context with like other highly paid or other big time tight ends in the league?
2: I think what we're finding out is how the Browns value the tight end. when we think of big time big money tight ends, we think of guys that are catching a lot of passes, get a lot of yards after contact, guys like that like Kelsey um, but we don't we don't think of the well rounded kind of tight end that it seems that Stefanski really wants here Um, more much more than just a guy who catches much more than even just a guy who run blocks because like I said pass blocking has become something that that he uh, has actually done pretty well at and they have him on the field a lot for so the Browns value tight ends a lot more than obviously linebackers and 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 maybe uh, we'll find out if they value more their running backs probably uh, sooner rather than later But it's a different way of thinking about their running back. Because, again, like you said, you're thinking of, you know, Zach Ertz, Kelsey, Hunter Henry, guys who uh, are, you know, among the league leaders in in tight end catches. And that's just not going to be Austin Hooper this season. He's going to be different. That doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be bad. And you have to wrap your head around the fact that this other stuff that he does is also worth money, too.
1: So are, are you generally happy, Scott? Like, do you think they are using him correctly? Or would you adjust it somehow?
2: Well, what Ellis tells me is there's a lot of fantasy football players who are not happy. (laughs) Probably with most of the skilled people on the Browns this year, it's not really going to be the type of team they were hoping. But I mean, whether or not I'm happy, I I think efficiency is the name of the game for this team. It's quality over quantity for, for all these skilled people. It's getting the most out of them in what few opportunities they have compared to what they used to be. So you know, if that's the way he's using him and, and it's getting wins, then, then fine.
0: Real quickly, real quickly, Scott, I, I want to go back to your, your point you made about um, the seam route and how that differentiated between what he was doing in Atlanta and how Kevin Safansky used tight ends in Minnesota. I think that's a fascinating stat because we're now entering a point, and we'll, a lot of this is going to depend on how Dallas goes and, you know, Indy after that once they start playing some AFC teams here. But we might be entering a spot where Kevin Stefanski might have to change his offense just a little bit to help Baker Mayfield out. In Minnesota, he had Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen able to make plays on the outside and deep crosses, and that's how they were able to move the ball between the 20s and get some of those chunk plays. Not saying that Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. can't do that. We saw how Odell's going to be used at his best. The Cincinnati touchdown is the play I will always go back to. That's Odell, and also it's Odell on the uh, pass breakup against Washington. If, if Baker and he said that after the game, if Baker just puts more air under that and lets Odell run under it. That's how Odell's using this offense. One of these two players need to start. Kevin fancy needs to find a way to get one of these two players involved in the offense. It's either going to be Austin Hooper or it's going to be Jarvis Landry. That's how this team's going to start moving the ball in between the twenties. And I don't know if that means you start bringing more seam routes back into the the Browns' offense, even though Kevin Stefanski hasn't done that for the past few seasons. Because Baker, at the end of the day, none, these quarterbacks aren't made the same. They're all different prospects. So, Baker has had a liking to his tight end. I mean, there was a reason he looked for Demetrius Harris, and we got to watch – there we go, dropping his name again. But we got to watch Harris, you know, try to get his feet down in the back of the end zone only to be three yards out of bounds. You know, there's a reason for these things. It's not because Kevin – or Freddie Kitchens was saying, hey, throw it to your tight end. It's because Baker has eyes for there. So, for perhaps – Kevin Stefanski, in a few weeks here, if, if the offense is still stalling at times, he needs to look for ways to get Austin Hooper more involved rather than just having a cookie-cutter like offense that he's bringing from Minnesota because you're so right about the comp between Kyle Rudolph and Hooper. They just changed roles despite Hooper being about you know eight years younger.
2: Yeah, Landry actually had seven seam uh, route receptions last season. Hooper was fourth in the league with eight. So, yeah, they were both pretty good at that.
1: Can I make another – dumb guy point and I, and I know what i'm being dumb but I'm, I'm i'm i try to be the voice of the below average fan when harrison bryant last week again i thought he had a really good block on the edge on a, on a long chub run he did a really good job as you guys spelled out uh finding an open spot in the end zone as, as baker scrambled right and part of me was like man they got that guy in the fourth round he's a rookie he's pretty good where they spend all this money on this other guy for because it's like that's my right When they don't have any good players, I'm like, how come they don't have any good players? And then when they have like a rookie who looks pretty good at tight end, I'm like, well, why did they spend money on the other tight end? But actually that should be good, right? Is that, that's how good teams work. I'm not sure how good teams work. They have multiple (laughs) good guys at the same position. Is that how you build a, a
2: playoff roster? From what I understand? Yes. That's how it works.
0: And Doug, I'll say this about the tight end position. Um, I lived with two tight ends throughout my college football playing days. I just was actually at the wedding of one of my former tight ends. It's the second hardest offensive position to play in football after quarterback. You got to know the entire run scheme. You got to know the entire pass concepts. And then not only that, Kevin Safansky clearly puts a heightened level of responsibility and trust on his tight ends with how he moves them around the formation. So as we started this podcast talking about how Harrison Bryant flexes out Wide as a wide receiver. I mean, now you're playing three different positions. You're a receiver, you're an offensive tackle, and you're a tight end. So that is why, especially at this position with how Kevin Stefanski values it, you need depth, you need to pay top dollar. And there's no guarantee that a first or second round rookie can come in and be a tight end that Kevin Stefanski can trust. I mean, Kyle Rudolph is a long veteran in this league for a reason, and that's how Kevin Stefanski was able to get the best out of Rudolph. It's an it's a intellectual trust that you, it would be difficult to put on a rookie, which is why Harrison Bryant can do the, the cute dress-up stuff, and Austin Hooper is being trusted with a lot of the dirty work right now.
1: All right, so this is a big deal. They've got to move the ball against the Cowboys on Sunday. Scott, how do you envision that Austin Hooper might contribute
2: to that? Well, this is, after we've talked about what he, what he hasn't done this season, this might be a game that, uh, not necessarily a coming out party, but this might be maybe one of the, uh, the hills on the roller coaster. The Cowboys are in the top 10 in, in catches allowed by tight ends this season. They haven't allowed as many as the Browns, the Browns are third, but they have allowed 17. And a lot of the targets have gone against Joe Thomas, linebacker Joe Thomas, not to be confused with future Hall of Famer Joe Thomas. Hayden Hurst. Of the Falcons had five catches, 72 yards, and a touchdown against the Cowboys. Greg Olson last week for the Seahawks, six, uh, five catches, 61 yards. Joe Thomas has lit up two touchdowns against tight ends this season. He is, I believe, second on the team in targets, defensive targets. He's kind of been the B.J. Goodson in that regard of uh, of the Cowboys. So it seems that the opportunities are there. The Cowboys haven't been great at covering the tight end, and other teams have found success. So if you're going to have a game where, where Austin Hooper kind of goes off a little bit, this seems to, like, seems to be the, the kind of game that could have that potential.
1: This is a point that I am curious about, which, which works into how he'll be used against the Cowboys and also sort of the difference between here and Atlanta. Uh, according to PFF, so far this season, Austin Hooper's snaps. He's been an inline tight end, like with his hand on the ground, 82% of the time. He's been in the slot 13% and out wide 5%. So it's 82% with his hand on the ground. In Atlanta last year, he was 54% hand on the ground, 38% in the slot, 8% out wide. So he is playing tight end, block, be a tight end, a lot more. And when I watched, again, one game from two years ago, when he was making plays in that game where he was targeted a lot in Tampa Bay, he had a lot of little three-yard routes run out and turn around a little three yard route to the sideline. When he was making big plays, he had a really big third down catch that helped keep a drive alive that led to like the game winning points. Almost every big play he made, he was in the slot. And so that's where he, when he really is making an impact as a receiver, he's lining up that way. He's getting a linebacker and he's using his physicality and some of his moves to get open. So I, I don't, that's a difference. That's a pretty stark difference, right? How he's being used does that mean that they should line him up in the slot more in Cleveland? Or is that just like, Hey, this offense is a little different, adjust to it and it'll be fine.
2: I think Kevin Stavansky is going to use him the way he wants to use him. And I I noticed that too. Uh, There was a lot more uh, lined up off, you know, off the offensive line. He's been in motion a ton here too. Uh, A lot. I watched two games of him last season and I don't know that I saw him in motion at all. So that's something that he's been doing a lot for the Browns. I, I think Kevin Spansky is going to use him the way he wants to. I don't know that uh, – I mean, look, they have a prolific slot receiver on this team that I, you know, they clearly need to get the ball to too. So I think using, using Austin Hooper in the way they have, that's probably going to keep going. But I do think that this week maybe, maybe he sees the targets he hasn't seen just by doing what he's been doing.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that says a lot about uh, just the, the spot this room is in right now, i.e. no David Njoku. I don't know how David would do – when asked to stay in tight and run block or take some of those traditional tight end routes and be able to flex Austin Hooper. But he has the frame and the build to do so a third year pro. He can do the things and he has the body that simply Harrison Bryant does not. So just due to circumstance, I think that's why Kevin Stefanski is asking so much again, gritty, dirty work out of Austin Hooper because Harrison can block, but he's not, you're really going to, Ruin your run game at the point of attack or on a, a backside block if you're asking him to do the type of blocks that Austin Hooper could. So I suspect that this team wants David and joshku back healthy just for the fierce fact to have another body that can do some of that dirty work. And then Kevin's fancy could try and explore a little more where to put Austin Hooper in the formation.
1: And it, is it one of those things that when they get the right matchup, maybe they'll put him out in the slot a little bit more when it's the right opportunity? And I mean, I guess what you're saying, Ellis, is, well, you got to have the other people on the field that it's okay. Well, maybe Njoku can be in line, and now you can put Hooper in the slot or something. But could there be, I don't know, Scott, would you expect with the potential matchups, it seems like you feel like this could be a good week, right? That's what you were saying. This could be a good week for Hooper. Should he be still catching those those balls out of a traditional tight end spot, or
2: would you put him out in the slot a little more often? I think as long, if you can get him matched up against Joe Thomas, I think you do what you have to do to make that happen because clearly other teams are having success with that. Even Jalen Smith, who I know is a pro bowler, but if you're going to find a weakness in his game, it's been coverage, especially this year. So yeah, you know, if, if you can get the matchup you want, I think, I think we're going to see as the season goes on, we're going to see all the tight ends moving around a lot more. Um, I mean, I, we saw them in the backfield a ton during training camp and we really haven't seen much of that at all. Right. Um, you know, the, 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 the screen that they threw to Hooper on the first play Um, that was something I've been waiting three weeks for that, you know, all of a sudden it finally showed up. So I think as you go along, you are going to see guys moved around the formation more because this is all about getting the right matchup. That's why you have guys like Kareem Hunt on this team and, and even guys like Andy Janovich who are going to split out of the, out of the backfield and uh, try to get Kevin Stefanski what he wants. So uh, I think you're going to see a lot more people, maybe not traditionally where they line up.
1: So let's make Scott make a prediction. Two targets in week one, four targets each in week two and week three. How many targets for Austin Hooper against Dallas?
2: I'm gonna say six. I'm gonna go big. I'm gonna say six, and I'm gonna say he gets target in the red zone. Okay. Does that sound about right to you, Ellis?
0: Yeah, I think so. For two reasons, a lot of there is mismatch opportunities with this Dallas uh, uh, back seven, and if we're just playing out the way this game is gonna go, I see the Browns being behind, which is bodes more for more Baker Mayfield passes, which means a better chance for uh, Hooper to be targeted. Great. Odell and Hooper will finally get the ball more because the Browns will be down
1: 21-0 in the first quarter. I'm Ellis Williams. Uh, All right, listen, that was two good breakdowns, things that matter for this offense, things that really matter for this offense. And I like when things are kind of connected a little bit, that it's like, hey, they're good in the red zone, Austin Hooper maybe can even be more of a part of that. Um, So we took two deep dives here on got to watch the tape. We'll take a quick break and be right back with final quick thoughts heading into this weekend. The Browns at Dallas on Sunday, we'll be right back on got to watch the tape from cleveland.com. We'd like to finish with a few little quickies here on got to watch the tape. Ellis Williams, what you got for us?
0: Yeah, well, I teased it during the show today already, but for me, this is going to be a fascinating game for the Browns going to Dallas I think it's going to come down to how they play on third down, specifically their third and, and I don't want to call it long, but I'm saying intermediate, you know, your they're, they're third and six, between six and nine. I haven't been impressed so far with the Browns there. And if they wind up in those situations again, they're going to have to find ways to convert. And then we were talking about in the last segment, how they play between the twenties. They need to start moving the ball, especially against an offense like Dallas and, and a weaker defense and a secondary in the Cowboys. So I'll be watching those two things this week. Scott Patska, what you got? You know, last season, we heard a lot about Baker
2: Mayfield and play action, uh, how his completion percentage went up 10% when they used play action. Only Gardner Minshew had a bigger jump. This season, he's actually gone the other way. When the Browns use play action, his completion percentage is 10 points worse than when they don't. He's at 55% in play action plays, which I was just kind of surprised to – to realize this week. So I'm kind of watching how that goes this week because while it's not good, he has improved in each game. He was six of eight on play action against Washington. So it's trending the right way, but it's still surprising that that's really flip-flopped from what we saw last year.
0: That's a heck of a T, Scott. There do, you you go. Think,
1: do you think there's something to it or is it possibly just kind of random or, or are you slightly concerned for the Browns about that?
2: i 'm surprised i haven 't spent enough time trying to figure out why it is, but I mean it 's a new offense it 's not what they were running that last year, and you know the throws he 's looking for aren't going to be the same on play action that he was looking for last year so it's it 's something definitely to keep an eye on and I think we 're going to be diving into in the near future
1: all right so i 'll do uh, I should especially call my thing like the dumb guy uh, thought of the week. this is like a dumb guy thing this is like a new york uh, talk show host kind of thing
0: uh, big game for Odell going
1: down to play on the star in Dallas I think OBJ likes the spotlight that's my kind of thing right I mean that's my level of thinking uh, Odell Beckham seven games against the Cowboys in his career uh three and four he has uh five career touchdowns in seven games against the Cowboys he has uh 477 receiving yards in those seven games so I don't know I don't know it's a you know they're famous he's famous what a great time for Odell to have a crazy good game! I, I just can't. It would be for the, if the if the Browns went and won, and Odell had like 173 yards receiving. Browns fans would be, I mean, literally the happiest they've been since the Browns were in the playoffs. Right, that they won with the guy they love doing that. I would just like to see that for everybody. Go ahead, Ellis.
0: Yeah, I said this on the PixPod, but I want to say it everywhere because I think it's really important to point out. This is the type of game that changes narratives, and not only does it change national narratives, it changes how a team feels about themselves in the locker room. So even though I don't think the Browns can go in and win this game because I haven't seen enough uh, against the Ravens or a good defense like Washington that they can go do that, this is reminiscent of when the Buffalo Bills went to Dallas last year and got a win no one really expected. It was in a national audience. I think it was a Thanksgiving game. And Buffalo really hasn't slowed down since. So this is the type of game there's a lot at stake. Even though it's NFC-AFC opponent, it won't have anything to do with the playoffs. Just from a a narrative and a a self-confidence standpoint, this is a huge game for the Browns.
2: I think Odell can have a big game, but I think a lot of receivers are going to have big games this weekend. And most of them are probably going to play for the Cowboys. Yeah, But Odell can still have a good game.
1: I mean, as well as he's played, he has, he, he has career touchdowns. I mean, he obviously played in the NFC East. He's used to playing the Cowboys. He has his most career touchdowns against the Eagles. He has six uh, and he has five each against Washington and Dallas. So that the fact that the the Browns are playing the entire NFC East this year is kind of a homecoming for Odell a little bit. So maybe he'll get some of those old giant vibes in Dallas. All right. We appreciate you guys listening to got to watch the tape. We always have a good time bringing it to you. We do it twice a week. Look for us next Tuesday after this Dallas game. Ellis will be headed to Dallas. Ellis, have you
0: been in uh, Jerry, Jerry World before? Never been on to Jerry World. I, I remember uh, seeing an uh, Alabama player playing uh, Madden on the, on the Jumbotron at Jerry World, and I realized, wow, going to game <sighs> would be cool, but playing a video game at Jerry World would be better. So that's my, my secret assignment there. Don't tell anyone. That would be a good story. <laughs> Reading a story about that.
1: I have, I've never seen an NFL game there, but of course, uh, Ohio State has a long history in Jerry World. So um, it's a fun stadium. So have a good trip. I I like it. I like Gotta Watch the Tape. I like the name. I like the merch. Do we have merch? No, we should get merch. We, We gotta get some merch. Make sure you catch all the Orange and Brown Talk podcasts. Try our Buckeye Talk. If you guys don't listen to Buckeye Talk and you care about Ohio State, Ohio State's gonna start playing football on October 24th. So you can find that wherever you found the Orange and Brown Talk. You can also find Buckeye Talk. We'll, we'll be back next week, again, twice a week. For now, thanks to Scott. Thanks to Ellis for those great deep dives. Thanks to you guys for listening. We appreciate you diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.